You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead on The Exchange, stocks are dropping to session lows as the Fed chair suggests he's open to half-point rate hikes if and when inflation warrants it. The Dow's down 321 points. Now, this all comes after the best week for markets since late 2020. Before you get too worried, one key strategist says the Fed has so far played its cards perfectly here. Has he changed his mind? We'll ask in just a moment. Plus, Warren Buffett makes a deal, buying another insurance conglomerate for about $11 billion. Berkshire shares hitting all-time highs as Buffett has been reascending the world's wealthiest list. Is the Buffett way back? And a division at Disney, a rift growing between CEO Bob Chapek and his predecessor, Bob Iger. They rarely talk. We'll tell you how it started and where things might go from here. But first, follow me over for a check on these markets where you can see the declines accelerating. Uh, Fed Chair Powell's comments crossed about 1230 Eastern time, so just about half an hour ago. The Dow's now down pretty much everything. The Dow and the Nasdaq are down 1%, so a 334 point drop for the Dow, down 148 for the Nasdaq, which is actually back towards the session lows we saw this morning. It briefly went positive. The S&P down 24 points or about half a percent. Let's get a quick check on oil, which actually continued to accelerate to the upside after those hawkish remarks as well, so didn't do a lot to take the wind out of the sales here, although maybe some moderation in the last few moments. So we crossed above 111 a barrel today. WTI right now 109.60 up about 5%. There were attacks on Saudi oil infrastructure, reports that European leaders may now consider a ban on Russian oil and gas. Stay tuned there. And let's show yields on the rise big time. This is the story of the day right now. The 10-year yield at 2.28%. I forget I can actually draw on this here. So we've seen this acceleration going back at first to the Fed's meeting last week. Then yield started to come back down a little bit. And now we're getting another leg higher to almost 2.3%. So it's hurting some of the long duration plays in the market, if you want to call it that. It's also having some interesting dynamics across the yield curve we'll get to in a moment. This morning, the Fed's Raphael Bostic had actually been a little bit less hawkish than his colleagues in a speech. Uh, but that quickly fades into memory as Fed Chair Powell just said he would be open to half point hikes. Let's get more from Rick Santelli out at the CME. Rick? Yeah, it is a strange day, and maybe a good chunk of it actually started in Europe. If you look at German PPI, uh, this is going back to 1977 record-keeping. Third month over 20, a record 25.9% on its latest PPI read, and that really does underscore what's going on. And most of that was energy. If you strip out energy, the number's less than half, only up 12.4, only up 12.4%. And consider this, right now, 10-year note yields popped about five basis points on the Paul comments to 228. Well, we have sevens at 232. We have fives at 230. We have threes at 230. You see what I'm talking about. We not only have a traffic jam, a bunch of those cars are actually higher yielding than tens, which shows the distortions in the yield curve. Much of this started, as I said, now look at the intraday 10. You can see coming into our time zone when the futures open at 820, that's that pop up that we had when yields started to move. But the rest of these charts start the session before the Fed's first rate hike on 316. So you can see, look at 10 years. Yes, they've moved rather aggressively, but if you look at where the spread was, 10s to 2s on the day the Fed hiked, 
it's moved about 10 basis points flatter, which means even though 10-year yields have moved up, two-year note yields have outpaced them by 10 basis points since the 15th close. And if you look at what's going on with respect to Boons, Boons have really padded. They're up in the high mid-40s. Now they were at 18 when the Fed tightened. And finally, the dollar index. The last close above 99 even was the day before the Fed tightened because the dollar has built so much of the proverbial rate increase cycle in that a lot of that was priced in. Ultimately, what we want to continue to pay attention to today is there isn't a trader around who isn't stuck on these pops in treasuries as yields continue to drop, the long continue to capitulate, and it really has turned into a bit of a selling spiral. Kelly, back to you. Rick, in his press conference last week, Chair Powell made it clear then that he would be open to half-point hikes if needed. What's the difference between the market's reaction then, which largely took it in stride, and to today? You know, there really isn't a lot of difference. The markets are just more nervous. And all the other data points that continue to fuel the notion that the Fed is immensely behind the curve continue to pop up like today's PPI in Germany. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli, the Dow down 360 points. Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. Dave, let's just start with your reaction to the comments from the Fed chair. What stands out to you about his speech today? I I think you're right, Kelly. There's not too much different uh, than what he said uh, at the press conference last week. He was open to 50s. They gave us very hawkish forward guidance, uh, about 40 bips more than what the market was thinking for the cumulative time to the end of 2023. I think they brought forward the balance sheet contraction in many people's minds to being live and ready ready to go at the next meeting. We'll learn more about that at the minutes. They left only a 25 basis point instead of a 50 basis point move. And I think that's just to kind of test the market out, see how they take the hawkishness. Um, and the reality is, I think Jay probably sat back and said, you know what, this market took that pretty well. I'm going to keep going. I got a strong housing market. I got 1.7 job openings for every one person that's looking for a job. I've got to I've got to get this thing moving because we have a 7.9 headline CPI and we got to do something about it. So I think he's he's emboldened a little bit. And that's what the speech today was, a sort of reiteration of all that. So not to to sort of make you predict the uh, tick by tick here, but do you think that investors will ultimately be able to kind of stomach this the same way that we saw, you know, we saw the markets fluctuate last week a little bit, but then kind of really pick up steam into the end of the week. Would you expect the same dynamic to play out again here? So, I, you know, on the, on the S&P or the, the, the equity side, we've had a heck of a, a run back up from, from the lows, um, whether that's just, you know, squaring up of positions after all the quarterly all the quarterly uh, witching hour stuff or are the options that expired? I don't know. Uh, it's harder for me to get into those minutia. But I think the bigger picture is that the upside in stocks for this year, Kelly, is just not that high. Uh, the Fed's going to be more hawkish as we go up. They're going to feel more emboldened to get rid of that uh, inflation story. And the downside is is more risky because the Fed put, just as we've talked about a number of times, just doesn't really kick in until a lot later because of the inflation pressures that they have to continue to fight. So the risk reward is just not in your favor. Uh, And I think as we said it last time, the Fed's just not as much of a friend as it's been in the past, depending on how the shocks all work through the system. So I think it's a very tricky time to be all in risk assets. That said, I I think the growth story, the outlook for the economy is actually pretty, pretty reasonable. And I think we can withstand it, especially in the housing market where everything is booming. 
Yeah, it's sort of like the scenario you were describing in the past could almost be Goldilocks because it would mean either risk assets perform or the Fed steps in with QE. But this time it's it's almost the opposite, where it's like things aren't bad enough that the Fed's going to you know be more accommodative, but they're not good enough uh, that we're going to see this kind of strong rally on its own. So let me ask you about bonds. How much more do you think the 10-year could back up before you and others, I know you're not going to buy treasuries per se, but you know across the curve before you get really interested in buying the bond market at these levels? So, Kelly, I think, you know, Rick was pointing this out in, in his analysis to you earlier. And I think it's really important for, for listeners to, to think about this. This is we're one rate hike in and the threes, tens curve is already inverted. Twos, tens, I think, is hitting a new low below 20. Uh, I fully expect this curve to be inverted twos, tens and lower uh, within the next rate hike or or, or the one after. And I think that's going to cause the Fed a little bit of a, a problem, a little bit of consternation. And they're going to start to look to the balance sheet and say, well, if you guys are really going to keep these 10-year note yields this low as we're taking rates and rate expectations up in the front end, we're going to be a little bit more aggressive with the balance sheet. I think that's for the later half of the year. But I think we're going to get a more healthy combination of both balance sheet contraction and um, and, uh, and and rate rises in the front end. And the more this curve inverts, the more I think they're going to be focusing in on that balance sheet. And that's going to be the interesting debate as we go into the end of the year. And maybe Bostic was hinting at that a little bit this morning, because even in being slightly more dovish than his colleagues, he said, you know, he thought it was worth uh, looking at the balance sheet and, and moving there. Last week, we spoke with uh, Stephen Rusciuto of Mizuho, and he was concerned as a market practitioner about the Fed both raising rates and being aggressive on the balance sheet at the same time. He was sort of saying each one carries its own risks. When you do them at the same time, you multiply those risks and really wacky things can happen. Again, as somebody who, who sort of follows the market movements here very closely, do you think that he has a point that or do you expect the Fed to, to be moving aggressively on both? Well, let, let me put it this way, and I don't think Steve's far off the mark in that, but let me try to be a little bit more specific. If you look at what we did in response to COVID, we cut rates 175 basis points, which by and large just isn't that much, Kelly. It's it's a very small rate cut in the grand scheme of looking at rate cuts over recessions in the post-war period. We did, however, increase the balance sheet by $5 trillion from $3.8 trillion to $8.8 trillion in a very short period of time, two years. If monetary policy was responsible for the inflation that we're getting today, and we might think it's all supply disruptions, maybe it's demand, maybe it's monetary, maybe it's fiscal. But let's just say that we, we think there's some piece of it that is related to somewhat overzealousness on the monetary policy side. It's not going to be the rate hikes or the removal of that 175 cut that's really the help here. It's going to be that $5 trillion that probably caused us the problems. So I think you know, maybe Raphael, I didn't, I, you know, I've been in London seeing clients all, all, all day today, so I didn't read Raphael's speech today yet. But it, it, my guess is what you're alluding to is that there is going to be more focus on the balance sheet, that that was the primary tool that we used during COVID to get us across the Rubicon and get all these jobs back. Oh, yeah, we, we've gained back almost 8 million jobs in the last 12 to 13 months uh, from doing what we did, being a little extra easy during 2021. Uh, and we've gained back, I think, 14 or 13 million jobs from the from the worst of the situation. So I, I think you have to look at the balance sheet. You would be you know, almost remiss if you said, oh, let's just leave the balance sheet alone. This is a gigantic balance sheet move. Um, and I think it, it's, it's going to warrant 
um, some extra care and extra concern and yeah. probably is an, you know, while they don't want to make it the primary tool, I understand that. I think they're going to have to make it a little bit more important of a tool than they made it last time. And that is what they've been saying. Final question, just to, to go back to it. Where is the level that you think bonds need to go then? If, if in a way you're implying we haven't hit anywhere near where they should be. I mean, if they've told us they're going to take the Fed funds rate to 2.8% by the end of next year, the 10-year is still only at 23 not even. Kelly, I, I think the path is we actually get a pretty serious inversion toward the end of the year that the 10-year note yield doesn't go up nearly as much as the Fed wants it to. And that forces them to think about that uh, plan B that gotcha. I think Jim Bullard referred to. And that'll get you that next leg up in the 10-year yield, at least initially, maybe taking us north of 250 into 275 or, or as high as three. I don't see a big, uh, big storyline beyond that. I think um, at the end of the day, you're going to find that uh, this tightening that they that they uh, they engage in, while it's going to have to be here for a while, uh, and they're going to have to push inflation down for even longer because they have average inflation targeting, so they got to make up for past inflation mistakes too. Um, I, I think you're going to be able to get the direction of the inflation rate going in the right way, in the right magnitude, without having to go up to these four or five percent levels, especially if you lean on the balance sheet, especially if you start to take that down much faster. You can avoid having to take the rates up much higher. And I think the Fed will do that. Next time we can talk a little bit about why if you want, but I think yeah. a lot of it has to do with interest on reserves and how they pay that out and who they pay that out to. Fair, excellent point. And we should, Dave, I just want to read you this headline. Powell uh, just said, while they have not decided what the next rate move will be, quote unquote, nothing would prevent a 50 basis point rate hike in May. I, I think he's emboldened after the last meeting. The market took it pretty well. So, why not try to hit this thing, uh, hit this thing off, and get this 7.9 number? That's that's really a blemish on their report card. Get it off the report card faster. Uh, show that they're they're ready to they're they're ready to take it seriously. And I, I did recognize, I did say that it was his his move toward a Volcker-esque moment or his Volcker-esque nod. I think, you know, Jay is going to be as we heard him in his uh, testimony or his uh, when he was when he was uh, in front of Congress for his hearings. Uh, to be renominated, he really deified Volcker. He really iconified Volcker, and and I think um, we should not expect him to be uh, a 1970s or late 1960s style Fed chair at all. Well, it's been great to have you here for these headlines and analysis, David Zervos. Thanks for your time. Always a pleasure, Kelly. Take he care. is the chief market strategist at Jefferies. Now, you might think the market's taking another leg lower after those latest remarks, but we're still hanging on with a Dow decline of about 350 points. Day is young, though. We'll see what else uh, what the market makes of these comments from the Fed chair. We'll bring you the Q&A as well when we get that in a couple of minutes' time. Meanwhile, shares of Berkshire Hathaway are hitting an all-time high after the company announced its biggest deal since 2016. Is the Berkshire way back? We'll speak to a longtime Buffett watcher next. Plus, crude just posted its first back-to-back -back weekly losses of the year. It's back on the upswing today, though. We'll look at why and speak with Matt Gallagher, who's on the board of Pioneer in Chesapeake, about this volatility in prices. And as we head to break, here's a final quick look at the red across the screen there, losses in stocks. Losses in bonds, the Nasdaq, the worst performer, down 1.2%. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Berkshire Hathaway striking its biggest deal in six years, agreeing to buy insurance company Allegheny for nearly $12 billion. Now, the move comes just a few days after Berkshire A shares hit an all-time high and crossed the half-million-dollar mark. The B shares also trading at an all-time high. Berkshire's been outperforming the broad markets and that shiny new toy on the block, the RK ETF. So is the Berkshire way back? With me now is Bob Miles. He's a longtime shareholder and author of The Warren Buffett CEO. So I guess I know your answer, Bob. You probably think he never went anywhere. Uh, he didn't. He says principles are, well, thanks for inviting me on your show, Kelly. Um, he says principles are principles because they don't change. If they change, they're not principles. So he never went anywhere. I think uh, the market is paying attention to him now, mainly because of the share price. Uh, not so much this acquisition of Allegheny. Yeah, so the real sort of um, the the shift to watch that's been really fascinating is once again to look over the last couple of years at all the stocks that were outperforming during the pandemic and now how quickly they've come back down to earth. And what is it that you think for Berkshire is working? Is it just value in materials and solid business? You know, it, everything seems to be going right for them right now. Yeah, you know, Warren says we invest in insulation, paint, bricks, you know, try to control your excitement. So uh, value never went away. Uh, but I think what the market's now realizing is that value is a component of growth. And uh, I think now there's uh, a shift towards value and a, and a lot of attention on Berkshire because of the half a billion mark of their share price. That's unprecedented in the capital market history. And um, we'll probably see uh, the million-dollar mark in another uh, seven, eight years if it continues to grow at 10% a year. So, wow. Um, that's the attention it's getting. And plus, I think uh, the gamification uh, took, uh, you know, made the stock market somewhat of a gambling vehicle for a lot of young people. I was just at the University of Florida uh, lecturing uh, this last week, and they talked about crypto. And they're worried about crypto in that one person's tweet can change the price instantly. And uh, I sense that there's a drift, particularly of young investors, away from the gamification of the stock market and away from crypto and more towards hopefully what Warren says are the good uh, investments, which are productive assets. Sure. Now, what do you make of the Allegheny deal, which it's kind of more of the same. It's actually pretty small in the grand scheme of things. And during the pandemic, with these huge stock moves where they could have been more opportunistic, we didn't see Berkshire jump in and buy an airline, for instance, or anything like that. So before, you know, Munger and Buffett leave the company, is there something you'd like to see them do? Have you been frustrated at all in, in their kind of uh, lack of action here lately? Uh, no, I'm a, a patient long-term shareholder, which is the exactly the type of shareholder that Warren and Charlie want to attract. Um, I think the SPACs had a lot to do with the lack of opportunity. You know, you know, his largest purchase uh, to date has been his own stock, some over $50 billion in the last two years, more than Apple, his second largest investment. And uh, Allegheny is uh, top 10. Uh, so it's a it's a big deal, but I think they're just patient, and he can sit there and just wait for the market to come to him. And I think the SPACs, uh, the gamification, uh, has uh, in, a, in a lot of investment in towards innovative stocks, 
have uh, are really outside uh, their scope of interest. So for sure, uh, I, you know, I've just been patiently waiting as a shareholder and very pleased as a long term shareholder to see the stock up uh, 17 times since I've owned it. So, you know, if it if it uh, continues to just do one or two percent better than the S&P 500, uh, I'm a happy shareholder. Amazing. Bob, it's been great to have you on today with some insight. We appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Bob Miles. Coming up, the RK Fintech Innovation ETF. Well, it's doing okay the past week. It's coming off its best week ever with a firm block and Robinhood all outperforming. Is this a false start or a breakout for real? Plus, Disney shares are only up 3% since Bob Chapek became CEO in February of 2020. They've underperformed the Dow by a wide margin. We'll take a look at his relationship with his predecessor, Bob Iger, and what their falling out means for the future of Disney. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back. We're at session lows. The Dow down just under 400 points right now. The Nasdaq down 190. We were in the red this morning. Then the S&P, or I'm sorry, the Nasdaq went into the green. Uh, now, in the past hour, after we heard from Fed Chair Powell, markets are decidedly selling off. We should get his Q&A portion, some updates soon. We'll, of course, bring that to you. But again, he is not at all ruling out a half point rate hike at the next meeting or uh, in the future. Energy is outperforming every sector today and the only one in positive territory for this year. It's up 37% and almost 3% today uh, as WTI jumps again. Within energy, the biggest gainers are Occidental, Marathon, Hess, and Diamondback. WTI nearing 111 a barrel a little bit earlier. The Crane Shares China Internet ETF, the K-Web, lower today after surging 29% last week for its best week ever, coming off a long stretch of losses. JD.com, Pinduodua, Baba, and Billy Billy. Uh, all among big laggards. In a mixed bag for the chip stocks, AMD among the leaders, both Bank of America and BMO saying NVIDIA is a buy ahead of its analyst day tomorrow, and you can see much of the rest of the spaces in the red. Let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Hopes are fading that there will be any survivors from a passenger plane crash in southern China. Initial reports say that the first rescuers to reach the scene found only debris and fire. A Boeing 737-800 jet suddenly dived into a mountain. 132 people were on board. Russia's military says that a Kyiv shopping center that it leveled was storing Ukrainian rockets. The New York Times reports, though, that there was no visible evidence of military vehicles or hardware at the site. It also says that the scope of the devastation is greater than anything seen before in the capital. City officials say that at least eight people were killed. And a large yacht associated with Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich has docked in Turkey. Shipping data indicates that it's been avoiding European Union water in recent days. Abramovich, the owner of the Chelsea UK soccer team, is subject to EU sanctions that could lead to the seizure of the 46-foot yacht. And tonight on the news, supplies of Russian and Ukrainian wheat have been disrupted by the war. A look at how that's affecting American farmers and consumers. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Up next, if you think inflation is bad here, consider yourself lucky you're not in Germany, where they saw a huge surge in costs as they deal with the energy fallout of the Ukraine war. We'll talk to the former CEO of Parsley Energy, Matt Gallagher, about how much worse things could get here, or if the worst is behind us. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Just want to show you the 10-year yield, which a moment ago crossed above 2.3%. That's its highest level since May 2019. So a three-year high and a very significant move 
going back to last week. This one triggered by comments from Fed Chair Powell. We'll have more on that in just a moment. Meantime, oil prices are also jumping again after two back-to-back weekly declines. All this as Russia's invasion of Ukraine has disrupted energy markets around the world. It's been much worse in Europe so far, in fact, because their natural gas prices have spiked way more than ours. Take a look at their Dutch natural gas futures. That's kind of the benchmark. They're up more than a thousand percent in the past two years. Again, more than a thousand percent. Europe received 45 percent of its natural gas from Russia last year. Germany reportedly looking to Qatar now for more supplies given the conflict. As a result of this price spike, inflation in, the, in Europe and Germany is soaring. German producer prices spiked 25 percent year on year this morning. That compares with negative 2 percent just a year ago. So again, a tremendous amount of this upward move is driven by the increase in their energy prices. Here at home, U.S. nat gas prices are up only 200 percent in the same time frame. That has helped blunt the uh, impact on inflation, relatively speaking. Here's our move in context. Doesn't look so bad, but our oil prices have jumped more, up nearly fivefold for West Texas versus a little more than fourfold for Brent over the past two years. So how much worse could things get on the energy front or is the worst over? Joining us now is Matt Gallagher. He's the founder and CEO of GreenLake Energy Ventures. He's also on the board of Pioneer and Chesapeake and was formerly CEO of Parsley Energy. Matt, it's great to see you. And obviously we're relieved that the U.S. industry has been more contained on the natural gas side. But how much worse could uh, prices get, do you think? Well, hello, Kelly. It's great to be with you again. It's been a couple of years. Lots has changed. But first of all, I want to reassure everyone the U.S. shale industry does have the resources to decouple from the Russian energy weapon. Both on the crude side, we uh, peaked imports at about 600,000 barrels a day from Russia here in the U.S., but also on the natural gas and the LNG front, uh, both for the domestic, our domestic citizens, but also for our allies. I mean, in just by 2030, we could increase fourfold the LNG production and we could supply, we could decouple, we could supply Germany with everything they need in Europe to help help blunt this impact. And this would be rateable over time. And on the crude side, in just the next 12 to 20, uh, sorry, 12 to 24 months, we could offset that 600,000 barrels a day of crude imports from Russia just due to our natural growth. Well, what you're saying about Europe is especially important because prices are linked. Theirs have been worse, but if they are going to move to ban Russian oil and gas, what do you think that would do to prices even for U.S. consumers? There's a short-term spillover, that's that's for certain. So we need to make sure we have a concentrated and stable regulatory environment, and we need to commit uh, on a global scale. It's going to be over $100 billion of investment from, from the industry. This is not asking for any external support, but we just need uh, stable regulatory conditions, and we need to get moving on this fairly rapidly. We've seen a very quick announcements on LNG deals from Germany. We've seen uh, permits go through here in the U.S., which is a great sign. So I think the I think the the gears are in motion and we need to continue on that front. I'm also yeah. proud to be part of the answer on the crude front. We have one rig running at, at Green Lake Energy, uh, but we're not alone. There's 55 other independent producers here in the U.S. that run only one rig. So uh, we're doing we're chipping away uh, growing production as we can. Matt, I, we have to cut it short because of more breaking news out of the Fed. Uh, we uh, apologize for that. We'll bring you back soon. Hope to continue the discussion, uh, if that's all right. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Matt Thank Gallagher. You. We want to cut back to Steve Leisman, who is at the NABE session where Fed Chair Powell just finished his question and answer session uh, and has been making more headlines. Steve, what can you tell us? 
Uh, the Fed chair, uh, Kelly, said that nothing would stop the Fed from raising by 50 basis points in May if it indeed uh, decided that it needed to do so. He's not saying for sure that that's what the Fed will do, but he's saying nothing will stop it. And he made clear the Fed would use would, would go to 50 base point rate hikes if it needed to, as well as go above neutral. Uh, here's what he said earlier in his speech. If we conclude that it is appropriate to move more aggressively by raising the federal funds rate by more than 25 basis point at a meeting or meetings, we will do so. And if we determine that we need to tighten beyond common measures of neutral and into a more restrictive stance, we'll do that as well. Uh, not surprisingly, the probability of a 50 base point rate, rate hike as measured by Refinitiv surging to 65 percent. It was around 50 percent uh, last Friday, and it is up quite a bit today. It seems to be becoming the odds on bet, at least for the moment, uh, of the market. Uh, and that was not all that the Fed chair said that was hawkish. He went on to say that there's a rising risk that long-term expectations, uh, inflation expectations, could move higher. That's a key for the Federal Reserve to watch. If that gets unhinged, the Fed would certainly be concerned about that. He sees the Ukraine war potentially leading to more inflation and also pointed to more COVID-related supply disruptions from China. So, uh, Kelly, the only good thing the Fed chair said was that he didn't see a high chance of recession and he thinks it's possible to get down to 2 percent inflation over three years. But mostly he gave what I would call a consolidated hawkish uh, um, uh, speech today, which taking some of the, the highlights of his hawkishness last week and sort of putting them in bolder relief today, I'd say. You know, Dave Zervos suggested this, but do you think this is a Volcker-esque moment for Powell here, given the can the clarity, the candid nature of his remarks, the way in which he's now, he was really hawkish last week. He basically said what he's saying today. He's emphasizing it, re-emphasizing it, even joking about how they're going to go ahead and raise half a, a point next month. I mean, how significant are, are these comments? Um, I think Volker-esque is good. I, I think it's not exactly uh, like Volker in the sense that uh, whatever Powell's doing, I believe he's doing it from a lower level, at least at the moment, doesn't have quite as much work to do as Volcker. But he's laying down a marker. He began with that language last Wednesday. You'll remember Kelly saying he looked at a committee that was ready to essentially fight for inflation. And now he's saying, you know, remember we had Waller on on Friday and, and, and Chris Waller, the Fed governor, was pretty clear about wanting to do more earlier. And it sounds to me like uh, uh, Powell is kind of siding with the hawkish wing of the party there and saying, look, we may have to go 50s, we have to do them quick. Remember, they're looking down the barrel, I think, at a really lousy March inflation report that's going to come out eight and a half, nine percent. Who knows what happens with uh, the COVID-related China supply disruptions, as well as the knock-on effects from the Ukraine war. You know, since you're at this gathering of business economists, Steve, how do you think this is going down with the crowd? Is this exactly what they want to hear from the Fed chair, or, or are they a little nervous? I think they've been looking at their watch and saying, uh, how about it, Jay? It's time. Um, there was a, a survey, actually. Um, I love being able to put data to my feelings about things. Um, there was a survey that they released over the weekend, Kelly, that said that 77 percent believe that the Fed, uh, Fed policy is too stimulative. So this group in general, and, and Kelly, you know these folks maybe as well as I do. Maybe I've been around a little bit longer, but you know who I'm talking about. These are folks that in general 
tend to side with the Fed. When the Fed has a policy, they're inclined to think that the Fed policy is the right policy. Well, the last survey, 50% thought the Fed was too stimulative. It's now up to 77%. Wow. When you lose this crowd, you're decidedly behind the curve, I would suggest. I wonder if the theme of the conference, you know, I think it's sustainable and inclusive growth. And if maybe inflation, I guess I'm saying even for those planning this event, this feels like it has taken them by surprise. You know, it's taken the Fed by surprise. They've been way behind the curve. It's, you know, it, you, know, no, you know what I mean? Kelly, that's a great point. And, and, and I'll tell you what, this, what I think is really interesting, because we had a discussion at lunch with a couple of former Fed staffers who I've known for a lot of years, which is when would you have made the pivot? Where did policy go wrong? Why did it go wrong? Should the Fed had responded to the Trump era and the, and the early Biden fiscal stimulus? Um, should it have responded in the middle of the COVID crisis uh, or the COVID, the COVID wave of, 20, or of the summer of 21? When should Powell have pivoted and by how much did he do too much too early? There was a lot of agreement in our little lunchtime discussion that the Fed was fighting the last war when it came to not doing enough early enough and having no fiscal help. Well, this time it did a whole lot real early and had a ton of fiscal help. And should policy have calibrated to that? I think we're just beginning to do the history. But what's clear, uh, Kelly, is that the pivot has happened. The Fed is focused on fighting inflation. And the question becomes for the market, calibrating what that response looks like. And it is really a moving target with the Fed chair honing, I would say today, a hawkish response by the Federal Reserve. No, and I love you bringing kind of the buzz to us as well. That's that's the best of being able to go and, and be part of these gatherings. Steve, thanks In so person. much. In exactly. person. Imagine that. <laughs> exactly. We never take it for granted anymore. Steve, thank you. We'll check in soon. Right. Steve Leisman at the NABE conference. Let's just quickly check on the markets because even though they initially hit session lows with the Dow down almost 400 points on those Powell headlines, we've since come back uh, quite a ways on that. The Dow is down 328, uh, just shy of 1%. Coming up, the fintech names have gotten beaten up so far this year, and Jim Chano sees further pain ahead for Coinbase. But one analyst says Coin's unique model and crypto diversification makes it a solid long-term play. Her thoughts next on The Exchange. Welcome back. After a weak start to the year, the fintech stock saw a pretty nice rally last week. Square was up 42%. A firm was up 64 percent, PayPal up 20 percent, and Coinbase up about 16 percent. But famed short seller Jim Chanos doesn't think those moves will last, particularly for Coinbase. This is what he told Scott Wapner on Closing Bell Overtime. We're looking for companies where the, uh, the profit forecasts are continuing to decline as the valuations stay up in the stratosphere. There are plenty of companies that, that are in the new economy that, that have, have real growth and real cash flows and real earnings. But there's a lot that are just being sold on stories. And we would argue that Coinbase is one that's being sold on a story. Is he right? Or what would the bulls say about Coinbase? Joining us now is Lisa Ellis, partner at Moffitt Nathanson. Uh, it's great to see you again, Lisa. And let's just start right in on Coinbase where you know, the proponents would say, just wait till they launch the NFT platform. They have a lot of big things coming. What are your reasons for liking the stock here? Yeah, Coinbase is a diversified platform play in the crypto economy. So basically, if you're a believer that uh, crypto technology will develop um, in a number of different areas, of course, in brokerage and exchange, but also as a method of payment, 
as a store of value in NFTs, et cetera. If you believe in any one or more of these, Coinbase is positioning itself as that sort of platform play that creates the on-ramps and on-ramps into the crypto economy as the major Western regulated version of that. And in our view, that is an extremely unique, one-of-a-kind asset where you can get in on the ground floor. It's volatile, it's unpredictable in the near term, but if you're taking a multi-year view, in our view, this is one of the most attractive entry points to a very unique story um, over a multi-year time frame. Is your price target still 600? <laughs> it is, yes. And I would say right now, it only gets more attractive in the sense that uh, Coinbase, um, their 2021 performance was astonishingly strong. They're generating um, I think interesting, uh, interestingly for a company of this maturity level, over a billion dollars in gap net income uh, in 2021. And they're now trading um, at a price to sales multiple of less than five times. Um, by comparison, even a high flyer like Shopify, somebody like that that's pulled back quite a bit is still at 10 times, like double the valuation. Uh, and many other companies are much higher. So we just view the current level very attractive. And that $600 price target actually, um, it's one year price target is only about 11 times price to sales on a one year basis, in our view, very much in line with many of those other comps. So why do you think it is, given that Bitcoin has actually held up relatively well? You know, there's people were certainly braced for worse. We're still around 40,000, I think, at last check. Why is it the Coinbase stock has been so much harder hit than the crypto price itself? Yeah, it's look, there's no question. There's a few different dynamics going on that we'll just have to work through over time. One, there's the regulatory uncertainty. Um, so far, uh, the Fed is generally coming out, you know, reasonably positive, right? Looking for an overarching regulatory framework, um, pretty supportive of uh, stable coins, for example. But there's big uncertainty still about how crypto tokens are going to be treated as securities, right, as commodities, et cetera. That's a big regulatory uncertainty that just makes some investors uncomfortable um, investing in Coinbase ahead of the clarity around those types of decisions. There's also other factors um, like, uh, like the fact that you know, Coinbase is a one-of-a-kind asset. Actually, it would help Coinbase if other players in this space, like an FTX, like a Kraken, for example, went public and there was more disclosures and um, a broader investor community kind of understanding and educating themselves on the space because Coinbase still suffers just from a basic lack of um, like investor education and comfort um, in you know investing in this stock uh, relative to other options they have in tech. Fascinating. Again, that would be more than a triple uh, from here. Lisa, thanks for joining us to talk about the other side of it. We appreciate it. Lisa Ellis with Moffat Nathanson. We've got a news alert on Apple. It is a busy hour. Steve Kovac here with the story. Steve? Hey, Kelly. Some Apple services are down this afternoon. This includes stuff like the App Store, the iTunes Store, uh, streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, right now, Apple's status page is saying uh, most or all users are experiencing these problems. Uh, but I will say these things are typically a blip and they come back relatively quickly. But it's something worth keeping an eye on because if this does become a widespread spat, uh, outage like we've seen with other services, it's something to watch. Sure. And Apple shares are back in negative territory as the market has moved lower this afternoon. Steve, thank you. You got it. Our Steve Kovac. Up next, shares of Disney have dropped more than 27% over the past year as they work to find their footing in a post-COVID world. And there's a lot at stake personally for CEO Bob Chapek. We'll tell you why next.
A Disney divided. CEO Bob Chapek had a falling out with former CEO Bob Iger, and now the two of them rarely speak. In a piece over the weekend for CNBC.com, Alex Sherman got all the details of the rift and how Chapek has already changed the company during his short tenure. Sherman joins me now to discuss. Alex, it's great to have you here. And first of all, what happened? How did this come to pass? So, Kelly, superficially, this is really a failed relationship between two men. Um, and it happened fairly early on, at least the beginning of the deterioration between Bob Iger and Bob Chapek. There was an article in the New York Times in April of 2020. So the pandemic had really just started, and it was just weeks after Iger had named Chapek as his successor as CEO. Iger would stay on as executive chairman. In that article, Iger basically told the New York Times, I plan on sticking around and helping Bob Chapek run this company because I've been running it for the last 15 or so years. Um, so, you know, basically, why wouldn't he want me to stick around and help him? This is an unprecedented time. Uh, but Bob Chapek had actually never said to Bob Iger, hey, look, I, I, I want or need your help. So he was quite angry with the article. He, he made it he, he basically uh, felt like it made him look weak as a leader. Uh, and, and their relationship never really recovered, I'm told. Um, so, so on the surface, it's kind of just a strained relationship between two men. Underneath that, though, there are also organizational differences, leadership style differences between Bob Iger and Bob Chapek that contributed right. to sort of the elongation of that strained relationship. And that's what the story is really about, those organizational and yes. leadership differences. And where the company should go from here. So before we kind of delve into that aspect of it, and Iger, by the way, had told David Faber in his exit interview, uh, December 2021, quote, it shouldn't be a concern to Disney shareholders at all that any dynamic between us would have an impact on the company long term. How would you say that's played out? And now that Iger is gone, is he gone? So I think only Bob Iger could answer that one. Though, to be honest, Bob Iger has said already he is not coming back. So if you take him at his word, he is gone. Uh, he, he, is, he is not the CEO, he's not the chairman, and he doesn't plan on coming back as CEO. So how does it linger over the company? Well, at, at a very literal level, it doesn't. At this point, Disney is Bob Chapek's company. Uh, but more metaphorically or figuratively, Bob Chapek has gotten into a decent amount of hot water, I would say, over the first 18 months or so of his CEO tenure, most recently uh, with a, an acknowledged misstep on how he dealt with Florida's don't say gay legislation. Uh, he's, he's come under a lot of heat from employees, uh, as our Julia Borstein has recently reported. He's now sort of uh, uh, trying to walk that back and regain trust with employees who felt like he should have been more strident in his defense of the LGBTQ community. But beyond that, he made a very big decision to separate so-called P&L power uh, from division heads within Disney and putting it all or putting most of it in the hands of this one man, Kareem Daniel, who was uh, someone who came up with Bob Chapek and very much Bob Chapek's right hand man. That decision, removing kind of the power of the purse right. from longtime division leaders at Disney, that's been the big sticking point, And we'll have to see the results uh, of that over the next year. Well, I, I highly recommend people read the whole piece. It has great details. Chapek's contract, as you report, Alex, up in February. So uh, we'll be following this uh, closely. Appreciate you joining me and uh, definitely recommend that people head over there to read more about it. Alex, thanks.
Alex Sherman with CNBC.com. Up next, this name is up 30% over the past week as talks between Russia and Ukraine remain unproductive. We will reveal it and whether the price can remain up in the clouds after this. Welcome back, everybody. The cyber stocks are lower today, but they're coming off a massive run in the past week. Frank Holland here with a look at what was driving that move. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. You know, as the Russia-Ukraine conflict continues, there's growing concern that cyber attacks from Russia are looming, leading to a rally for those cybersecurity and cyber-focused cloud stocks over the past week. Experts say the escalation of the fighting and the opposition by the West to Russian aggression is only increasing the likelihood of both cyber and ransomware attacks. Last week, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency issuing an alert saying Russian state-sponsored actors have found holes in some multi-factor authentication systems. That's when you try to log on and you're sent a text or an email to verify your identity. One cyber threat that's still being figured out is Conti. It's one of the most known and most notorious ransomware gangs and said it would retaliate against any anti-Russia groups. However, they themselves were hacked and their code and other info put on Twitter. Now it's not clear if that stopped their plans or they could be gearing up for a major attack. Kelly, Frank, thank you very much. As we continue to follow those threats, we appreciate it. Frank Holland reporting with the latest. With the Dow down 316 points, everybody, about 100 points off the session lows. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.